Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won this picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. The scale feels vast, the spirit is joyous, as if everyone had set up to make the best Spider-Man movie ever, which is exactly what they've done. Joe Morganson of the Wall Street Journal. How about this one, too, from Brian Gill, Mad About Movies podcast. Beautifully structured, beautifully told, and beautifully rendered on screen. This is one of the decade's greater accomplishments in filmmaking. That's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, one of the films I'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. We appreciate you. And as always, go to iTunes. Give us some love. I rank my movies at a four-minute belief. You can rank the podcast out of five stars. Leave a comment for us. Subscribe, rate, review. Tell Granny. Tell Grandpa. Give us a little Yuletide spirit and give us some love. And we appreciate that so much more. Last time on the podcast, I reviewed seven movies. This time, I've got six movies. We do have our guest reviewer, Claire Atkins, back by popular demand. She was so great last time. This time, she'll be reviewing Mary, Queen of Scots, starring Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. I'll be talking about a bevy of films, not only Spider-Man, but a couple of foreign films, Cold War and Burning, Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman, and Roma, getting a lot of buzz from Alfonso Cuarón and Mary Poppins Returns, which I had the pleasure of watching last week with these wonderful screeners from the BFCA. I'll tell you all about it. Before we get to that, though, Dan, how did we do with regards to the quiz? Did we get 10 winners who got brand new cinephile hats? We're going to have to defer to Ricky here. I know I have mailed out five hats and I have two more to do today. It was a very clever quiz. Rick, was the audience equipped enough to get all 10? So we have seven official winners. Uh, Dave McPeak, Matt Searles, Chris Garcia, Jeffrey Coots, Joe Scherenbach, Brett Baker, and Kyle Pop all answered correctly. Wow. However, there were a few answers that came in were either off on one question or off on two questions. We're very adamant that they had it, but they didn't. So we still have three open spots. Listen to last week's episode. Right. Tweet us at Cinephile ESPN. You still got a chance to win a hat. Three spots left. I love it. Feels like McPeak's gotten them all right, too. Every quiz we do. I think he's like a fourth member of the staff. Without question. McPeak has started his own movie podcast. Check it out. So follow Dave McPeak. You can find him easily on Twitter. He has started his own movie podcast. So inspired by Cinephile. Dan's right. He's an avid listener, as is Brett Baker. He tweets me all the time. Both those guys, I'm not surprised. Kyle Pop, pretty sure that name sounds familiar. So thank you to those guys. And thanks to everybody for supporting the podcast. Your Cinephile hat, perfect for the holiday season. I watched First Reform for the second time after Dan's scathing review. Still love it. I, I watched it last night. Maybe I was wrong. Like, no, this movie is outstanding. Like, we're going to have just, this is, this is that, uh, demarcation line. It's Stanzik versus Verk. I'm like, no, this is a hell of a movie, man. We, we can discuss it more another time. I don't think the audience really wants to hear about this movie. Although it's funny, A24 is so good at tweeting. They tweeted, you know, First Reform, for those who haven't seen it, is the name of the church that Ethan Hawke works at. So the signage they put, will God forgive us if Paul Schrader isn't nominated? A24 doing some great stuff. Rick, how good is their social media campaign? They're tremendous. They're, they're one of the top uh, social media production companies out there. I mean, everyone else does kind of like the bigger companies. Just they'll tweet like a picture, do their little ad campaign. A24 is on it. They get uh. some great stuff out there. So follow at A24 if you want to see some good independent filmmaking 
uh, marketing ploys. They're, they're great. And being a member of BFCA, they send me fun stuff. So I got a little Pepto-Bismol and I got a little shot of whiskey. For those who have seen the movie, as Dan is chortling, very clever, very well done. I mean, it's spiritual anguish, soul crushing. I, I, I'm not, having seen it again, I'm not surprised Dan didn't go for it. And I agree with his point. It's not to mass audiences. But to audiences who will be selective, who like Schrader's work, I mean, it's right in the wheelhouse. I think you meant to say boring and confusing. <laughs> uh, but a quick shout out to Ricky. Don't sell yourself short back there with the, with the social media game. I yes. see your Alex Trebek gifts, and I love them. Yes, very well done. Very well. Yeah, sending it as a question, very good. Also, how the fact my brother noted the other day, Jeopardy, Mariah Carey, worlds colliding to me and Dan. Can you explain your fascination with Mariah Carey, or uh, do we have to do this off the air? We'll have to do this off the air. It'll be another time. Uh, let's get to the movie, shall we? Mary Poppins Returns. Big hit. Let's hope so. Let's go, Disney. Director Rob Marshall. I've always had a bit of a gripe against. I'll tell you exactly why. More than a bit of a gripe. I've never seen Chicago. This was back in my younger, more uncouth days, where I would be so angry when a movie of mine that I loved didn't do well, so I would boycott the other film. 2002, that, of course, was Gangs of New York. So when Marty did not win, I'm like, who's Rob Marshall? What? Chicago? Who wants to see this toe-tapping musical? I'm never going to watch this movie, so I've never seen it. For all I know, it's a great film. One best picture, Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Bah! I'm down on it. But I give Rob Marshall credit for Mary Poppins Returns, a fantastic rendering and update of the original film. Doesn't deviate too far from the original, so if you loved Julie Andrews and the iconic original from 1964, you'll appreciate the updated version. Two hours and ten minutes, a little long, but it's all about Jane and her brother Michael. Michael's now a father of three. He's fallen on hard times, got to make mortgage payments, etc. Lin-Manuel Miranda shows up as the chimney sweep, and Emily Blunt carries the film, playing the iconic role of Mary Poppins. A fabulous singer. I don't think the songs are as good as the original. There's no supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. There's no spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. But there's a handful of songs that are definitely uh, worthy of acclaim. Colin Firth shows up as the villain because I bloody well stammer. He's also very entertaining. Meryl Streep, completely unnecessary for a couple of scenes. We love Meryl, but there's no reason she should be in the movie. But what the hell? I hope somebody, by the way, got the King's Speech reference for Colin Firth. Dick Van Dyke's in the movie. How about Dick Van Dyke is still grinding it out here, showing up in the movie. Angela Lansbury as well. So an acclaimed cast. Claire and I were talking offhand. Uh, Lynn Miller wanted a, a bit of a token nomination there for Best Actor Golden Globes. I don't think he was worthy of the nomination, but he's fine. Obviously, the guy's a genius, what he did with Hamilton. I thought the real stars of the film were the production design and Sandy Powell. Who's Sandy Powell? She might be the best costume designer in Hollywood. She did Mary Poppins Returns costumes and does an incredible job with them. It's cheery and vibrant, and I'm giving Mary Poppins Returns three Maple Leafs. Go check it out. Support all of us here at Disney. Next up, Roma. Rave reviews everywhere. L.A. film critics just named it Best Picture. Uh, New York film critics gave Alfonso Coron Best Director. It's winning cinematography everywhere, and it's going to win cinematography at the Oscars. You can book it. He not only shot the film, also directed it, wrote it. I mean, this is a real passion project from a guy who won the Academy Award for Gravity, and it's a really a film close to his heart. Autobiographical, set in 1970s Mexico, and it is gorgeously shot, bathed in black and white, and the story is about his nanny, and is about the fact that, you know, oftentimes in stories like these, the nanny, or the help, is the peripheral character. This time, she takes center stage, as played by Yelitsa Aparicio, a complete non-actress, who is the focal point of the story and how she tries to keep this family together. Uh, Dad's a doctor, away on business, he's got some issues, but the nanny is the one keeping the entire family together. Now, it's gorgeous to look at. But it's all character, and it's completely devoid of plot. And I found it to be a tedious viewing experience. If Dan Stanza can watch Roma in one sitting, and it's on Netflix, you can watch it in one sitting 
I'll give you my Porsche. Fun fact. Watched Roma, three sittings, boring <laughs> AF, and I don't understand what this fascination is. Yeah. This is that line of demarcation you were talking about? Yeah. Cinematography's great. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Right. It's black and white. Right. It's subtitled, and I, I don't understand why people love it so much. I am flabbergasted at all these lists. Oh, best movie of yeah. the year. Right. Get out of here. You saw Roma. I, I tweeted to you, IndieWire, they had their top critics of the year. First reform was number two. Number one was Roma. I was it's baffling. And you know, Dan, listen, if we go back to the Oscars, you're not going to be asking Kobe Bryant questions this time. You're going to be asking Alfonso Cuaron, what's it like to win Best Picture? Oh, and I forgot, some full frontal male nudity. Brutal. 35 minutes Hard in. Hard sell. Yeah. <laughs> it was about a solid minute of full frontal male nudity. And no, there's no female nudity to offset that jarring image. There's so, two momentous events in the movie, and those are both vividly captured. Those are both fantastic. One set in the hospital, one's at the beach. And those are excellent. But to Dan's point, two scenes equating of 12 minutes does not vindicate the other two hours and 10 minutes. Rick Passmore would like to chime in. So would it be safe, is it safe to say that, uh, Dan would not be a fan of the Seven Seal by Igmar Bergman? Yeah, I'm about to say. Black it's and not white, be- subtitled. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, I, off, I, off, his, off his radar. And to your point, Rick, for cinephiles, I think he's working in neorealism, Carl. Like, if you love those, you know, Italian films of the 50s, if you like, you know, Vittoria De Sica, if you like uh, a film like Paisan, like, those are all character, no plot, set in atmosphere, childlike experiences. I, I clearly can see what he's going for, and I can understand why those critics loved it, loved it. But I think the masses will be with Dan. I would be... Listen, if you thought The Shape of Water was like an outside-the-box pick, if Roma wins Best Picture, like nobody's even going to see this movie. Can you picture Mike Golick <laughs> sitting down and watching Roma? Can you imagine his review of Roma? <laughs> we do need to make this happen now. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we need to convince him. Like, I'll give you 100 bucks if you watch the movie. 100 bucks? Yeah, $100 right now. Go, watch it. But I want in-depth, comprehensive In one notes. sitting. In you one sitting. You cannot Great, leave. Yeah. Correct. It was like five sittings to get through. I'm like, all right, fine. Dan took three sittings. Brutal. Good news is, I'll give it two Maple Leafs just for the cinematography. What the hell? It looks great. I know it's from this heart. Awesome. (laughs) Congratulations. There's a huge Netflix battle as well, by the way, if this did win Best Picture, but that's a story for another time. I don't think it'll win Best Picture. Although, who knows what the PGA is going to say. That's the Producers Guild Award. The good news is, my spotty senses were tingling for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Three directors worked on this film, and how about this voice cast? My man Mahershala Ali, Lily Tomlin, Katherine Hahn, Liev Schreiber, Chris Pine, and the great Nicolas Cage, who plays Spider-Man as if Spider-Man was from the film noir era. That's right. He's one of these tough-talking gumshoes with a fedora and a trench coat. Spider-Man as if he was from the Maltese Falcon. It is absolutely hilarious, and Nick Cage is great in it. Shemake Moore plays the main character. He is Miles Morales, a black Latino student who is in Brooklyn, who eventually becomes Spider-Man. And his dad is a police officer who does not approve of Spider-Man's methods. And there's a nice father-son dynamic. But it's awfully complex, and along with being complex... I think it'll be confusing for some. Ten-year-old Yusuf Scorsese confused at multiple moments. However, the popcorn did appease him. There's parallel universes. There's a space-time continuum. There's portals. It's like, wait, there's more than one Spider-Man. Yes, there's there's like six or seven Spider-Mans. There's this older Spider-Man. There's a female Spider-Man. Uh, there's a Chris Pine, apparently a Spider-Man. It's all over the place. However, I think Stan Lee would have been proud... And you read some of these reviews, they're calling it arguably the best Spider-Man movie ever, which means my brother will think it's the best movie of all time. I'm t- he texted me, because I'm like, are you kidding? You, Peter Parker's your Scorsese. you got to go see this movie. 
Uh, I enjoyed it very much. So three and a half Maple Leafs. It's going to be in my top ten movies of the year. Speaking of top ten, we'll be reviewing our top ten movies of the year on the next in a file, which will be the first podcast of January. But go check out Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's not only the best animated movie of the year, I think it's one of the best movies of the year, period. And let's fly through a couple more here. Fly through. Destroyer from director Karen Kuzuma. This is a role normally reserved for men, but Nicole Kidman plays the star. She is a screwed-up, hard-boiled, regretful, alcoholic cop. Estranged from her husband, has a 16-year-old daughter dating a late 20s hood. An old case resurfaces, and this is what sets the story in motion. Her character's name is Erin Bell. She's an undercover cop who went undercover in an L.A. gang with tragic results. Now a member of that crew has resurfaced, and she's trying to get to the bottom of solving the case and exacting vengeance. Bradley Whitford shows up. He plays a rich creep who's got a great scene in which he's yelling at his son playing baseball. I told you! Elbow! He does it three times. It's hilarious. But other than that, it's a standard cop drama. I found it a little bit convoluted at times. What's notable about it is Nicole Kidman, who is, of course, a beautiful, talented actress, an Academy Award winner, going grunge. Uh, in many ways, it's kind of like what Charlize Theron did with Monster, going all just just ragged in this performance. And I don't think he ever really escaped that. But ultimately, it becomes a way where you go, all right, look at Nicole Kidman playing down, and she's a good actress, and she's doing a role normally not given to women, but... It just feels like your garden variety cop cable drama that you'd find on Cinemax at midnight on a Thursday night. Thus, I'll give it two Maple Leafs. If you love Nicole Kidman, I'd give it three. But I think it, it doesn't overcome many of the tropes that you find in many of these cop dramas. It's well shot, although the last two minutes is laughable for just how sanctimonious the movie ends up becoming. Speaking of sanctimonious, here's a couple of foreign films before we wrap up this section of the podcast. Cold War, 1950s Poland. We have a love story here. Pavel Pavlikovsky. My dear friend Andrew Lashevsky, very disappointed me now, my Polish pronunciations. He won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. It stars Joanna Kulik, who plays Zula. It's an unlikely love story. Good news is it's 88 minutes. It's stark and lean, and it's romantic, shot in beautiful black and whites. We know Alfonso Cuaron likes it. You know the critics are going to love it. It's all about these politics, how it destroys lives and love. But honestly, I thought it was cliched and underwritten. It's the kind of movie that does great at the film festival, which is why I think he won Best Director at Cannes. But I can't imagine many people enjoying this film, and I certainly was not one of them. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. That's for Cold War, which is a good chance of being nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. And I'll have to lie through my teeth and tell everybody what a great movie it was. Speaking of foreign films, Burning, two hours and 28 minutes. South Korean film from Lee Chang Dong. Based on a short story by Haruki Murakami, here's the story. Jong Su runs into Hai Mi, a girl who once lived in his neighborhood, and she asks him to watch her cat while she's out of town. When she returns, she introduces him to Ben, a man she met on the trip. Ben then tells Jong Su about his hobby. Steven Yun is the character of Ben. If you like The Walking Dead, uh, you'll know who he is. He's a really good actor, apparently, in that show. But this movie puts the slow burn in burning. I thought it was languorous, took forever to get to the ending. The ending is uh, impactful, but I can't in good conscience recommend this one either. I'm giving this one two Maple Leafs. Also, there's a good chance of being nominated for Best Foreign Film. How about this? Best Foreign Film of the five nominees, I think it's going to be Cold War, Burning, and Roma. will be three of the five. So whatever else is nominated, I'll be pulling for those movies. Those are your reviews. Now time for the great Andy Serkis. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But... 
despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and a real thrill to bring in Andy Circus. If you know and love movies, you know how talented this guy is. And as an actor and now director, the film is called Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, currently available on Netflix. It's an adaptation of the Rudyard Kipling beloved classic, The Jungle Book. Andy, thank you so much for the time today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'd love to get into all the filmography, but let's start with Mowgli first. This cast is incredible. You've got Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, many, many others. What was it about the Rudyard Kipling book that made you want to say, listen, I know it's been done before, but I have a special uh, affinity for it and want to bring it to the screen? Well, the script that landed on my desk in, in 2013 was really, you know, getting back in touch with the source material at its heart. And what spoke to me about the book was, was this incredible journey of a young boy who, who is an outcast, who's an outsider and who feels other and is, goes on a very emotionally complex journey to, to discover where he belongs or how he's going to belong. So, you know, how he fits into the world of animals. He's obviously a feral child brought up in the, by a wolf pack, but he reaches a certain point in his life where the, where the rules and laws of that particular society don't apply to him anymore and and then when the nemesis character that Shere Khan the tiger is back on the scene he is then forced to go and assimilate into the world of mankind and neither, neither is he able to fully connect and and live a, a, a fulfilled life with mankind so the, again rules and laws of man's society don't apply also so so it, it for me it feels a very although the book was written a hundred years ago it feels incredibly contemporary in terms of in terms of being other in terms of not being at, at the center of uh, uh, of where you think you might be and that that journey to discovery so it's at the heart of it it's a very it's still a family film, but it's an emotional journey of, of discovery, of self-discovery. And you absolutely capture that imaginative spirit. But I found it so funny, Andy. They always say, never work with children or animals. You missed that memo and dove in with both. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, fortunately, um, all round, I was working with the best. So so the animals portrayed by the incredible cast, as you, as you say, you know, Kate Blanchett, Benedict Cumberbatch, Christian Bale, these guys are just world-class actors at the top of their game and and just have brought incredible um, detail, nuance and depth and emotional depth to, to all of the characters that they play. Um, and not not least the, the central character played by Rowan Chand, who, who's a very, very gifted young actor who, who, you know, I started working on this project when he was 10 years old and, we, and he was kind of getting on towards 14 by the time we'd finished it. Um, and he had such an astute kind of very, he was a very wise head on, on a young boy's shoulders, uh, which, which we needed to have. I mean, it's a very, as you, you know, as you'll have seen, a very complex emotional and, and physical journey. Um, and, and we really needed a, 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 because it's such a mostly centric story, we really needed someone who was going to be able to do that. And he was amazing. Yeah, Rohan Chan's performance is terrific. He's so expressive with his face. And like you said, he's a child. He's able to convey all that wonderment around him. And yet, whether there's fear or sadness, he's so expressive. And part of, I think, the journey, why I think this movie is so successful, you mentioned it's a great family film, great that I could watch it with my kids, is because of the fact you're so well-versed in the terms of motion capture and voice work and all that melding together. So in many ways, to me, it feels like the, the prototypical Andy Circus project because it brings together all your talents. Do you feel the same way? 
Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I, look, I, I hope so. And I think that's, that's what, what sort of makes this slightly different um, and slightly, you know, the use of performance capture is there for a, a, a major reason, which is that I really didn't want the animals in our version to look like, you know, Discovery Channel, real photo, real tigers and bears and panthers, and then with a voice sort of slapped on top. For me, it all comes from character. And when you think about it, this book was written, it was, uh, the, the animals were designed in a particular way, and a very specific way, uh, for, for two reasons. One, one is, uh, of course, the book was written in, in you know, 100 years ago, and the illustra- I was really informed by the illustrations of, of artists, you know, of the, of the Victorian era, who, who weren't you know, photographers or cinematographers or, you know, documentary makers, they, 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 their perception of these animals was through the pen and the paintbrush. So I was really inspired by the, uh, as I say, the early illustrations of that time. Um, and also the, the physiognomy, the facial structure of, of, of the animals, I really wanted to be able to see the actors' performances in because I, I just didn't want this disassociated, these disassociated voices on top of real animals. I just felt it was crucial that you were, were able to emote with these animals and, and see. We spent a lot of time in close-ups on their faces and looking deep into their eyes, and you want to see their thoughts and feelings. Um, so, so, so we designed the, the faces. So, uh, you know, we started on one side with a picture of the actors and on the other side a, a picture of the designed character, and then we, we morphed them gradually until there was a sweet spot where you could see the actor in the, in the face of the creature. And that was that was a big sort of... Again, it was a big sort of fundamental design choice and, and step in, in, in the way that we wanted to present the characters in, in our movie. We're talking with Andy Circus. The film is called Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. To your point about actor melding together, that's what's always fun. Of course, the adults, you go, oh my God, it's Christian Bale as a panther. You know, it's Benedict Cumberbatch as a tiger. It's Kate Blanchett as a snake. Those actors specifically, can you tell me a story about one of them or uh, just about whatever direction you gave them in terms of inhabiting the character and, and having to work with this voice work and why it was so critical? Yeah, the thing is, when we all sat around the table at the read-through right at the beginning of production back in 2014, a lot of the actors asked me, you know, what's the secret of performance capture? And I said, you know what, I've got to tell you, there is no secret. It's just acting. It's creating a character. And yes, of course, if you're playing a panther or a tiger, you've got to, you've got to research the animal. You've got to find out their, their behavior, their physicality, how they move, how they hunt, etc., or what their social standing is within a group, if they're a group animal like the wolves. But... But actually, it becomes more specific than that. It's not just about mimicking animal behavior. It's about creating the character. And I think, to use Christian Bale as an example, um, you know, what Christian had was this really deep understanding of the character of Bagheera, which which again was, you know, going back to the book... The character of Bagheera is is uh, an animal that is brought up, you know, he's a wild animal, a panther, but he's in fact brought up by human beings uh, like a trophy pet in a cage. So his journey is is extraordinary. And he goes from being this, this uh, caged animal to, to going back to the jungle to find his, what it is to be a wild animal. So, so it's really about, with all of these characters, they're, they're, they represent human emotions in a way. They're not, they're not sort of... Um, you know, the way that Rudyard Kipling drew them and wrote about them, they, they are, they're allegories for humanity. They are uh, for the human condition. So, so 
Christian fully understood that, and as a great actor, um, he was able to to channel the the, the panther. You know, I, I was getting the actors to kind of channel the animals, but at the same time bring enormous amounts of humanity into the roles, and that's that's what acting is all about. It's 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 connecting you to the character in some way, and of course, when you're working with actors of this caliber, it, it was. You know, in terms of directing, it was it was a joy. It was because these actors fully understand how to do that. No question. We're talking to Andy Circus. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle is the film. I encourage you all of you to see it on uh, Netflix. Okay, I've got to ask you, of course, about Lord of the Rings. And in the past, it would have just been, you know, the voice of Gollum. How'd you find the voice? What is it like? But now you've got this unbelievable parody video of you recreating Gollum to take down <laughs> Theresa May. Listen, my mom, Andy, moved to England when she was 10 from Pakistan. So all my family is in England. So I know quite a bit about uh, London and what's going on with the prime minister. But for those who are unaware, please tell us uh, about your recreating Gollum and this rather hysterical parody you did. Well, it, you know, we are in a mess in the UK, as you as you well know. Um, we, you know, two and a half years ago, uh, half of the country, or just just over half of the country, voted. We were, we were told we were told that we were going to take back sovereignty. We were going to told that we were going to get out of Europe, and the Brexit vote happened. Now, as many people know, half of the country, or just under half of the country, I have to be very careful here, um, <laughs> voted to stay, and 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 half voted to go. And what has ensued is this absolute kind of conflicted nightmare of impossible uh, of, of, of trying to get the resolution passed through European government to, to, to extract for Britain to extract from, from, from Europe. Uh, I mean it's, it is a, it's an absolute, you know, it's a nightmare it is a nightmare and um, whether you whether you believe in it or not, we, everyone has been consumed by it. And and really, at the heart of it is is the conflict within the Tory Party and the conflict within a Prime Minister, who, of course, we all know was someone who wanted to remain in the European Union uh, ultimately at, at the beginning, and then became Prime Minister and then completely went the other way. So, so it's it's it seemed perfect to use the the, the conflict that is Gollum and Smeagol uh, to to depict. To depict the kind of the mess that we're all in, really. Oh, without question. I think it's brilliant. Just for those who haven't seen it, can you either give me a little bit of Gollum or Gollum as Theresa May, if you'll indulge me? <laughs> well, she, she, she kind of goes something like, I want it. It's my deal. It's my precious. I negotiated it. No, no, but the people want to vote. No, you know, and it goes on like that. It sort of basically is a back and forth banter, but you know, oh, that's fantastic. That's the little taste we need. Now that's like the trailer. Now people can go actually watch the movie and watch the entire family suppression of Teresa Bay. We're talking with Andy Serkis, of course, such a talented actor. The voice work. I mean, Planet of the Apes. You know what was so special about that was you said, you know, I really did not feel like I was watching an animal. I felt like I was watching. Uh, a human being. As you said, the same thing with Mowgli, what you've been able to do is that these are not animals. These are, are characters. They're representing emotions, etc. You know, and with Lord, of the, with Planet of the Apes, excuse me, you felt for this. You know what I mean? There was a real genuine empathy you were able to create in that character. And I was like, you know what? That's the kind of stuff that real actors aspire to be. I hope you appreciate how much people loved that movie and loved your performance as Caesar because it was really genuine. You know, James Franco said Andy Serkis is the undisputed master of the newest kind of acting called performance capture, and he should get all the credit for being so innovative with this movie. Wow, that's that's amazing praise. I mean, I, look, I, I, I've... I fell in love with this technology, not not because I'm a big tech person, because I'm not, but but the possibility of what it offers, sort of philosophically as an actor. And, it, and the epiphany for me sort of really happened just after Lord of the Rings, um, coming to the end of Lord of the Rings, when, when uh, Peter Jackson asked me to play King Kong. And suddenly I realized that there was this technology that, you know, here I was playing this 
three and a half foot ring junkie and now I'm playing a 25 foot gorilla. The, it's, it's typecasting is dead. It's the end of typecasting. It means, it means any actor can play anything and become anything. And, and, and that's why I've been so passionate about it and I've been very fortunate to work with great visionary directors who have used that technology like Matt Reeves in The Planet of the Apes and Rupert Wyatt and obviously Peter Jackson and, and Steven Spielberg and Tintin. And, you know, the list goes on. It's that, that, I, I feel, I mean, I've become, I, I know I've become the sort of the poster boy for, for it in a way, but, but I think it's because, I mean, and, and, and what's so great about Mowgli is now having a, a, a cast of great actors come in and embrace it and be able to, you know, use it for themselves and enjoy, and enjoy that, that journey. And, but yeah, I suppose I, I, I've, continue to be passionate about it over the last two decades since the Lord of the Rings and that's that's why um that's why and, and so Mowgli was a great film as a result to 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 be my first what was going to be my directorial debut actually also how about speaking of directors working in the prestige Christopher Nolan's a director I've long admired I mean David Bowie in the movie I mean that's that's a wonderful film and I think especially if somebody appreciates magicians and sleight of hand and the period detail yeah. what wonderful film what was your experience like working with Chris oh Oh my god! I, it, it, I love that film. I actually genuinely love that film, despite the fact. That I, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of just like I can watch that film very objectively and say, "What, what a great movie! Great performances!" And, and amazing. I remember reading the script for it; it was just superb. Um, um, it, it, you know, it was very special. Obviously, I had a lot of my scenes with David Barry, which was the most incredible thing because that man is, uh, apart from being such a huge hero of mine, um, he was so humble and, and genuine and funny. And we we had a lot of fun making it. Actually, a lot of uh, and, and Chris Nolan as a director. Wow, I mean, he he's so accurate and so sort of minimal in his directing. I mean, you, you, and you, all, you really had to be on, t- on, on top of your game because he gen- generally only did like two or three takes, so you, you were right on it. You had to be right on it. You know, there's, no, there's no slowly finding your way into the role. You're definitely going to be in there all the time. Mowgli is the film. I encourage all of you to go check it out. One last one for you, Andy, on a personal note. As I mentioned, all that family that I have in London, I have a cousin in Slough. He always punctuates everything he's saying with a, hey? So I'll give you an example. It's just something like uh, Andy Serkis, hey? great actor. Hey? Like, and it's kind of like a, hey? like almost like a grunt. So I'm, what I'm curious about is this. I think he's seen too many Ray Winstone movies because whenever I see Ray, I think that's how Ray Winstone kind of, hey? yeah, Avengers Age of Ultron, not bad, hey? Hey? Like, can you? Can you explain that to me? Is that an English thing? Is this just my cousin? Where does that come? Huh? Where does that come from? <laughs> I think it is an English thing. It sounds. It, yeah, I recognise it totally. I have a lot of friends who, who who speak like that too. And you know, it is. It's a sort. I don't know what it is. It's sort of like just qualifying. Everything's a bit of a qualifier, isn't it? Um, <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's kind of just adding punctuation to what you're saying. Yeah, I'm right. Aren't I? I'm right. Right. Aren't I? Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> he's always taking the mick out of me. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Andy Circus, what a pleasure to have him on here in Cinefall. Best of luck with the film. Great talking to you. Hey? Thank you, man. Take care. Thanks a lot. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETF, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. And so, when you look at the cost, there's no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. And you learn by doing. You learn how to invest as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, and track favorite companies with personalized news feed, custom notifications for price booms so you never miss the right moment to invest. 
Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at cinephile.robinhood.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E dot Robinhood.com. Back by popular demand, Claire Atkins is back in the house. This is exceptionally rare, Claire. We've never had a guest reviewer come back, back-to-back cinephiles. Such has been the rave reviews that you've received. I will attribute that to you having way too many movies to watch. So I, I'm happy to take the two-hour-plus period pieces off of your hands. You're way too smart. Just outsourcing films that I don't have the time for. I'm like, this is Claire's wheelhouse. And so, Mary Queen of Scots is what you are watching. I did, yeah. I was excited about this when I saw the trailers over the summer. I thought, oh, this is going to be a Christmas mm-hmm. awards movie. We have two best-nominated actresses from last season, and this and Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie, thinking, oh, this is going to be outstanding. Mm-hmm. However, I think it suffers a bit of the trend of this award season of going up against the favorite as another period piece. Yep. Uh, we saw that with Miseducation of Cameron Post and Boy Erased. Yeah. Uh, we see it with, there's another. Just films that are competing yeah, in films, the same Yeah, films genre. that are in the same genre. Oh, Ben is back. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Be, yes. and, and Beautiful Boy. Beautiful right. Boy. So right. it, it suffers from that. So if you've watched The Favorite, which of course has been huge, is, is going to be huge this award season, and mm-hmm. everybody walks out and says how delicious it is and wonderful and Olivia Coleman, you then go into Mary Queen of Scots, which of course is a true story, and it's good, but it's not great. I would say the movie is really carried by Sersha, who is fantastic as Mary Queen of Scots. Mm-hmm. And Margot Robbie's role as Elizabeth it is really not much of a role at all. It's mm-hmm. really not her film. Uh, and she's fine in the role, but but she has very few scenes, to be honest with you. It's not that slow, which is good. I mean, it keeps going, but you kind of are waiting for it to have its it's big aha moment that you're that you're like, all right, this is great. Like the, these two feminist characters coming together, and it just never quite gets there. What is the story actually about? This a battle for. Uh, the, the, so the I mean, or? you know, tr- true story, of course. Uh, Elizabeth and her cousin Mary. Mary uh, was shipped off to France uh, to be the Queen of France. Her husband dies within two years, so she's kind of in exile, and she wants to get back um, into England. So she's really kind of waiting for Elizabeth to invite her back into the fold. Now, Elizabeth, of course, is is jealous of her and doesn't want her around. So it's kind of that battle. And you're waiting for them to kind of have this meeting. Now, that's where historians say, well, we don't think they ever actually met. But this movie likes to play on that a little bit. So it's not the feminist movie that you think it's going to be like the favorite is um but i mean it, it's a good watch i mean it's it's beautifully shot uh it's produced or the adapted screenplay by bo willimon of, of house of cards mm-hmm. you know who when you think of uh claire underwood's character that robin writes it's claire underwood you think of like i mean true powerful females and this doesn't quite get there i could see saoirse ronan being nominated for the role and i think she would deserve it but beyond that it's not going to stick out to me as a memorable movie of the Christmas season. Yeah, because Margot Robbie got nominated for Supporting Actress, I think either by the Globes or the Sags or something, but you're telling me it's a, it's a pretty small role. Yeah, so again, she, if you're going to compare her to Olivia Coleman in the way of a, of a queen who's a little bit delusional and going through the kind of these ups and downs, right. and she just doesn't have enough screen time to fully have that role developed. So it... I'm not going to walk away remembering Margot Robbie's performance. But, the, the, but that just might be because she's just not in it as much. Right. To the movie that I knew would be your favorite of the year, the favorite. Yes. I mean, it was – there's no other way to describe it but delicious. I mean, it is evocative. It's it's just insane. 
Uh, but it doesn't go, I don't think it goes too far that it alienates an audience. I know that the ending is yeah, yeah. make it what you will, but, uh, I mean, it was just so beautifully shot and just think the lines and just little lines that I keep thinking back of are, it's just so well written. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was very fun. I would say it was probably about 15, 20 minutes too long, mm. but, other than that, I mean, it, it, it'll definitely be one of my favorites. Wickedly funny. Follow no Claire on uh, Twitter, Claire underscore Atkins? Yes, Claire underscore Atkins. And uh, IG? Uh, Twitter's probably the best place to find me. Dan, you want to give her an impromptu uh, top three Saoirse Ronan movies? We gave her the Julia Roberts last time. I think you'd like to quiz her on this time. Is she in enough movies? Saoirse Ronan? He can't yeah. get enough of Saoirse. Uh, Saoirse like inertia. Uh, I already Nailed told Sanzik I practiced that like 16 <laughs> times before I came in. Can you in. spell Saoirse for me? Oh, my goodness. Uh, S... <laughs> A. O, o A. No, no, S A A O R S E. Okay, there we go. You guys, you guys got it. Uh, but yeah, top three would be Lady Bird, of course, yeah. which was my favorite of last year. Uh, I would go. There's a Dan Stanzik personal fave, which atonement? I'm hoping. Atonement? Great. Oh, what a great choice. Yeah. Yeah. Love the shot. Joe Wright directed. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then. Don't say the one that he Come on, Claire. Me. Don't say it. It's very Irish. Oh, Brooklyn. Uh, I mean, sure. That was a sweet film. Uh, no, I mean, I would, I mean, she's fantastic in this role. I would say, I would put it at number three for me with her. All right. Claire Atkins, bring in the heat. All right. Dan saw Green Book. What'd you think? Love Vigo. Love Mahershala. Obviously, friends of the podcast. So, of course, I'm going to enjoy the movie. Um, I thought it was a little campy. I mm-hmm. I didn't think it was that great. Like, I don't think it's going to be a top five movie for me. Mm-hmm. I don't see it winning Best Picture, even though I don't know what is right now, because I didn't really like uh, A Star is Born either. Right. It's going to be A Star is Born, Roma, The Favorite, or Green Book. One of those oh, three. I got to see The Favorite then, because I don't want any of the other three to win. <laughs> Roma, you know my thoughts on that. Get that the F out of here. And I asked you, I stole this question from Devin, who works on Golik and Wingo and is currently sitting right next to me. I asked him if it's more of a comedy or more of a drama. You guys both said it's more of a comedy. comedy. I thought it was more of a drama. It and did. I also see where you're coming from, thinking a lot of people might think it's a whitewashing of the civil rights movement in the Deep South in the 60s. Right. I kind of see that. Right. I it's, mean, there were, there were some tough scenes, but not a lot. It seems like that was handled a little too quickly. Yeah. Two great reviews. I encourage you to do it. One is by our buddy Ty Burr, who gave it two and a half stars, and he said that. He goes, once again, it's a story of the black experience told to white eyes. But I want you to read Anne Hornaday's review. If you don't do it, I'll forward it to you. She's a great film critic. we got to get her on at some point. Washington Post. She gave it four uh, stars and loved the film and talked about how you know the movie's about the seismic change within the human heart and how that happens in incremental steps. It's really well written. But it's interesting to read both reviews because if you read Ty Burr's, you go, all right, kind of like what you're saying. He's like just hammering the fact it's the white experience. But then Hornady's review is like, wow, okay, this is an interesting way of looking at the film and why it's a great movie because it looks at small moments to achieve a larger message. It, it may be one of those movies that gets better upon rewatch. Like yeah. the, the connection point you made with Shawshank Redemption and male friendship, I thought was super interesting. Right. So maybe that will connect more the more times you see it. I also... I, I enjoyed the performance by the wife, Vigo's wife. Yeah, she's really good. She Linda Carlini. A, oh, I was going to ask the name. She had a, a small run in Mad Men, and she was in yeah. Freaks and Geeks, Yeah, right? Freaks and Geeks, I yeah. love her, yeah. Interesting you mentioned the camp. I did read that. Another review said that they go, like, Vigo's, like, accentuating every Italian-American stereotype. His delivery and just his personality, but I did find him funny. Devin, did you like it? I liked it. Um, But as Dan said, I, I did think it was more comedy and I, but i can see what he's saying about the campiness of it it was a little over the top with vigo uh the mule rick Pasper saw that he was back uh unfortunately he could not celebrate 
uh, Christmas time at the appropriate time. So he had to celebrate his holiday a little bit early because he'll be working. But he did take the opportunity to see The Mule with his family, Clint Eastwood's new film. By the way, they, they were so scared of what the reviews would be, they did not screen it for critics. Let's just slip this one in mid-December, getting no awards buzz. It's at about a 60%, so mixed reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm, I'm guessing the studio is probably thrilled with because they want to kind of subvert the masses. But uh did really well with its opening. $17 million, I think it's the third highest ever for a Clint movie. Grand Torino was a huge hit. When you go back years from now, you just look at it. It's unbelievable how well that movie did. But what did you think of The Mule? Well, my family loved it, uh, but they are also not as critical as I am when it comes to that stuff. My dad's a huge Clint Eastwood fan. We'll always give time to see one of Clint's films. And yeah. uh, this is supposedly, I don't know how true it is, but supposedly his final acting role. He is 88 years which old. Is st- so. Which bears mentioning again. Clint Eastwood is 88 years old, not only produced this film and directed it, but also starred in the movie. That's incredible. Whether you like his movies or not, the fact the guy's still grinding is incredible. Well, this is definitely a very, uh, I'll call this a very low acting effort for Clint Eastwood. There's not <laughs> a lot he needs to really do, but it's definitely a, I called it in my uh, tweet review, a gift for the actor from the director. It's a majority of the film just driving this beautiful Lincoln truck across the across the Mississippi River line going from Peoria, Illinois, down to El Paso, and it's just a ton of B-roll, just him driving and singing Sinatra and singing these songs. It, it does have heart. <laughs> this is a hell of a self. Listen, I love Sinatra, but I'll just play Sinatra myself hey, and drive down the road. Didn't he have the famous, was it a Lincoln commercial, the Super Bowl ad? Uh, I, I was does like, anyone remember what I was talking about? One, Lincoln's, it was but... him and McConaughey. They both had the two Lincoln commercials. And so this is true. So Clint is, so, you yeah, know so what? Big, so he's driving this beautiful, because he starts off with this old rusted Ford that, you know, if if you're any kind of person from the Midwest, you've seen these things all over the place, but they, they don't die. They never die for some reason. And this one eventually dies after he makes his first run. Uh, he gets tied in because he, he's he's uh, disassociated with his family. He he was a He's a horticulturalist. That loved the limelight. He, he was a great flower cutter, essentially. And he'd go to all these competitions all across the country and he completely, uh, just didn't deal with his family at all. Like anything to do with his family, he was out. Right. So, uh, he missed his daughter's wedding because he was at an event where he won for the best one and he, like, literally in the shot. And this is, it's just so ham fisted as far as I'm concerned how they set this up. <laughs> He's, it's a great they're term. juxtaposing. His daughter freaking out about getting married and, and the granddaughter saying, oh, no, he'll be here. He said he would. And then all of a sudden, like, but who will walk mommy down the aisle? And then she goes off and cries and it cuts back to him at the bar at the hotel going, buy a round for everyone on me. And they're saying even the wedding party. And you look back and there's this other wedding party there. He's like, obviously not the same one having thing. And he goes, yeah, yeah, for them, too. And he kind of sees he just kind of sours a little bit in his face and that. Typical Clint Eastwood way. Right. And then you cut to 12 years later where his granddaughter is now engaged and he's showing up. He's been foreclosed on at his farm because he's just a frivolous spender the way he lives his life. And he gets tied up in uh, running cocaine for the cartel from the Mexican border up to Chicago. And that's pretty much it for the next two hours. It's this back and forth, like how deeper it gets. Andy Garcia is the cartel leader. He really, Andy Garcia, enough. fantastic. Oh, I, you love Andy Garcia, but yeah. not enough screen time. Like, it's Andy Garcia. You give him four scenes. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's like Tucci, the same problem. Exactly. Andy Garcia, the way. Let's go. Bra- it's Bradley Andy Cooper and Michael Pena yeah. are the DEA agents trying to bust up this ring. I heard in, it's a thankless role for Cooper. He's very much so. He's, yeah. he, basically, it's, it's Cooper doing a favor for Eastwood right. for American uh, letting him shadow him for the last six years so he can learn how to direct, basically. Right. Um, but, but fine enough. Like, they're, like they do their roles well. It's definitely 
more of a comedy. I was up, I was uh, held in suspense for a little bit, just knowing what is going on. Like this ninety-year-old guy's running drugs from the border up to Chicago, <laughs> and I'm always thinking something's going to happen. Based on a true story. Based on the true, the, the story is it very interesting. It's a New York Times article. You should check it out. Right, but the Sinaloa cartels, ninety-year-old drug mule by Nick Schenk. Yep. So. All the, like, but it just, like I said, nothing, nothing real, like there's small moments of tension until the very end. And then when the end comes around and, and you're dealing with more of the personal stuff and the emotional aspect of it, the majority of the film is just a gift for Eastwood to drive around the country and have a couple of scenes where he gets to fool around with beautiful women. Thankfully, you don't see too, too much. No, I, no, I, I disagree. I heard from someone. Close to the situation, probably there's a sex scene involving Clint Eastwood in the movie. There is, but it's not gratuitous nor graphic. <laughs> Speaking about a gift from the director to the actor. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it, it's straight up. What is up. he, 31? Okay, I got this one, guys. I'm, I'm go watching, he's, he's, so he's, you know, minor spoiler alert, it happens about an hour into the film, so nothing crazy. Okay, good. But well, it can't top, the, it can't he's, top he, the sex scene He's in doing so well for the cartel that they bring him down to the mansion and Andy Garcia meets him, and they're having this big party, and they're kind of celebrating his his work because he broke the record for how much he, he made in a single run because he's a guy who never has a ticket, never had an accident. He just drives down, drives back. He's inconspicuous, even though he's driving this $80,000 Lincoln truck, and he's 90. You know, that should throw right. off some red flags. He went from this broken-out Ford to this truck. But right. he's down there, and then he's like, he's like, Brings a girl over, he's like, show him a good time, and she takes him up, and then another girl shows up, and yeah, he's like, just, yeah, he's yeah, like, you might need to call my cardiologist. I might <laughs> need some heart medicine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's and, then, and then dip to black, and then he goes out and he talks to his his watcher, essentially the guy that has to watch him during these right. big runs. So, so two maple leaves for the mule. Now I I think I gave it uh, three. I was three, stunned cause, by the yeah, because yeah. it's still a very entertaining Shocking. film. Okay. You but gotta go see Spider Man though. That's gonna absolutely. be your favorite. I might be seeing that today. There's no question. There's a 130 IMAX showing in the AMC Stubs. I get it for free. So. And uh, 30 seconds or less. Should I? Don't give me a review yet. But should I see Suspiria? I have the screener. Um, this is not. Was it a good movie? Should I see it? It's always a loaded question. People ask, "What should I see?" I go, well, "I don't know. What movies are you into?" Then I'll tell you. No, for you, for you, no. no. Definitely a hard sell for a cinephile of your taste where right. I think two and a half hours of what you're getting, a lot of really long scenes, a lot of just macabre visuals. Yeah. Not your alley, but I'm, you know, I want to rewatch it just to kind of see when it comes out. But, um, yeah, not, not, not your style. All right. Fair enough. Well, thanks so much everybody for supporting cinephile as always. Once again, on iTunes, I rank the movies at a four-way police. Please give us a ranking at a five stars. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. Uh, we'll be back in the new year, hoping to get the co-authors of a new book, The Soprano Sessions. That'll be our first podcast. And me, Dan, and Rick will all give our top ten movies of the year. We'll also give our five worst movies of the year, which sometimes can be a lot more fun than doing the top ten. Uh, until then, happy holidays. We'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.